This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit chalcedon.edu. That's C-H-A-L-C-E-D-O-N dot E-D-U to download this book in PDF. The One and the Many by R.J. Rushduni. Copyright 1971-2007, Mark R. Rushduni. Chalcedon Ross House Books. Dedication to H.W. Lunau, whose thoughtful role in the furtherance of research, science and scholarship is of major and central importance to this age. Chapter 1 of 14 Chapters The One and the Many Section 1 The Nature of the Problem One of the most basic and continuing problems of man's history is the question of the one and the many and their relationship. The fact that in recent years men have avoided discussion of this matter has not ceased to make their unstated presuppositions with respect to it determinative of their thinking. Much of the present concern about the trends of these times is literally wasted on useless effort because those who guide the activities cannot resolve, with the philosophical tools at hand to them, the problem of authority. This is at the heart of the problem of the power function of government, to the power to tax, to conscript, to execute for crimes and to wage warfare. The question of authority is again basic to education, religion and to the family. Where does authority rest? In democracy or in an elite? In the church or in some secular institution? In God or in reason? The implications of the problem are religious, as will be shown, But the fact that it is not discussed permits an ignorant equalisation of various religion and diverse theologies. The differences between Christianity and atheism are basic, as are the differences between Buddhism and Christianity. Russian Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, Anglicanism, Lutheranism and Calvinism each has its characteristic culture or consequence in the social and political action of its own presupposition. Failure to recognise the fact that all routes to God are not equally valid or relevant to the maintenance of historic Western culture, especially in the United States, has extensively clouded the possibility of an intelligible answer. The plea that this is a pluralistic culture is merely recognition of the problem, not an answer. The problem of authority is not answerable by reason alone, and basic to reason itself are pre-theoretical suppositions, or axioms, which represent essentially religious commitments. And one such basic commitment is with respect to the question of the one and the many. The fact that students can graduate from our universities as philosophy majors without any awareness of the importance or centrality of this question does not make the one and the many any less basic to our thinking. The difference between East and West, and between various aspects of Western history and culture, rests on answers to this problem, which, whether consciously or unconsciously, have been made. Whether recognised or not, every argument and every theological, philosophical, political or any other exposition is based on a presupposition about man, God and society, about reality. This presupposition rules and determines the conclusion. The effect is the result of a cause. And one such basic presupposition with reference is with reference to the one and the many. The avoidance of the problem makes necessary a few elementary definitions as a prelude to discussion. The one refers not to a number, but to unity and oneness. In metaphysics, it has usually meant the absolute, the supreme idea for Plato, the universe for Parmenides being as such for Plotinus and so on. The one can be a separate whole or it can be the sum of things in their analytic or synthetic wholeness. That is, it can be a transcendent one, which is the ground of all being, or it can be an imminent one. The many refers to the particularity or individuality of things. The universe is full of a multitude of beings. Is the truth concerning them inherent in their individuality, or is it in their basic oneness? If it is in their individuality, then the many are ultimate 
and the proper source of authority, and we have philosophical nominalism. If it is their oneness, then the one is ultimate, and we have realism. According to realism, universals, which are terms applicable to all the universe, and can be called real second substances, are aspects of the one idea and exist within it. Egyptian, much Greek and medieval scholastic thought has been realistic. For nominalism, abstract or general terms have no real existence and are mere names applied to aspects of reality. Reality belongs to particulars, actual physical particulars, so that the truth of being is simply that individual things exist. Truth is not some abstraction concerning particular things, but is simply the fact of particularity. Section 2. Attempts at a Solution The importance of these two philosophies becomes readily apparent if we analyse the presuppositions of dominant modern politico-economic theories. Nominalism has, since Occam, held extensive sway in modern history. Materialism and empiricism have been essentially nominalistic. Anarchism is the logical conclusion of such a philosophy. No truth or reality or law exists apart from particulars and individuals. God, law, government, church and morality are abstracts which represent a tyranny to man. Liberty means an unshackling of these chains and the affirmation of individuality as the essential aspect of reality. A logical champion of such nominalism, as Witness, Thoreau and Robert Lefebvre, is hostile to all religion and government and favours only a purely individual religion, if any, a self-government as the only true or possible government. The realist affirms instead the reality of the one rather than the many. For Plato's followers, the idea and the state had a reality which particulars did not possess. For the scholastics, such as Aquinas, the church, as the representative body, as the representative of the absolute reality and con continuation of the incarnation, had a reality above and beyond its every member. After Christianity lost its primary power in US history, nominalism took over and found expression in the thinking of the so-called robber barons. Charles S. Pierce, 1839-1914, reintroduced realism in its pragmatic and non-religious form into American thought, and Dewey developed it extensively. In England, G.E. Moore, born in 1873, moulded Fabian thought and thereby influenced America. The priority of the state to the individual and the reality of the state as against the unreality of the individual marked such thinking. For Dewey, the great community was the basic fact of history. Towards its actualization in history, all efforts must be bent. But for Dewey, the individual and the soul were invalid concepts. Man was truly man, not as an individual, but, after Aristotle, in society and supremely in the state. True education, thus, for Dewey, meant not the development of the individual in terms of learning, but his socialization. Progressive education is realistic, as is parochial education to a great extent. Most basic educated, uh, educators, however, are nominalists. Educate the individual in terms of the particular facts of the universe without reference to God, truth or morality. Further instances of the implications of the one and many problem can be seen in art. In the 17th to 19th centuries, art was nominalistic and generally aimed at a photographic reproduction of subjects so that in some instances the very warts on a man's nose were religiously depicted. Reality belonged to a, particu a particularity, to individuals and ideas. And ideas were less important progressively than material facts. Medieval art had been dedicated to philosophical realism i.e. more interested in portraying universal ideas, faith, love, etc., than persons who were particulars and less real. Modern art is non-thomistic realism. It despises things, particulars, individuals, and is given to portraying the experience of unity. 
It is thus a pagan mysticism and not infrequently seeks the mystical experience in drugs because of its hunger for the absorptive one. In science, a clear instance of nominalism is Kinsey, who, in his studies of sex, denied the the validity of universals and affirmed the sole reality of particulars. Sexual acts of any character are thus real, but moral laws are not. They are merely nominal, conventional and alien to the nature of things. In much Far Eastern thought, as in Hinduism and Buddhism, the problem of the one and the many no longer exists in many circles since centuries ago resolution was made in favour of the one. The goal of being is thus absorption into the one, and since particularity is unreal, or even an illusion, it follows that history is unimportant. Thus the Buddhist Milarepa could declare, Because I see the self-face of the view, the thought of contrast by itself dissolves. How, then, can I have the idea of two, the self and others? The view is void of limit and discrimination. When I practice, I become absorbed. Good and evil are reduced to self-liberation. How, then, can I have the idea of two, happiness and suffering? The practice is devoid of limitary feelings and experience. When I adhere to the self-continuance of action, dislike is reduced to self-liberation. How, then, can I have the impulse of two, craving and aversion? The action is free from limitary attachment. Since self-liberation is the fruit, both nirvana and samsara are reduced to it. How, then, can I have the idea of two, getting and abandoning? Absence of fear and hope is the fruit of this great patience. Meaning disappears from such a system, since meaning imposes limits and requires discrimination, all of which are alien to the unity of the one. Since history is struggle and discrimination, History means a revolt against the undifferentiated unity of being. As a result, Far Eastern cultures, in a sense, abdicated from history when their philosophy so resolved the problem of the one and the many. Only as Western thought has infiltrated Asia has history again gained relevancy. By virtue of its predisposition to absorption into the Great One, Eastern thought has been ready to accept such various forms of the one as the communist international, the ecumenical church and the United Nations. If meaning is accepted, it is the meaning of unity. In the West, philosophy has usually been dialectical, dialectical, that is, holding two antithetical principles in tension, such as form and matter in Greek philosophy, nature and grace in scholasticism, and nature and freedom in modern thought as Doyewiyad has shown. Because of this dialectical tension, it has been unable to rest content with a final solution, as has the East. In the West, therefore, both realism and nominalism, the one and the many, have had their uneasy sway. The Enlightenment, Deism and Illuminist thought exalted the principle of the one at the sacrifice of the many. Alexander Pope, in his essay on man, stated that this Enlightenment stated this enlightenment faith clearly all are parts of one stupendous whole whose body nature is and god the soul this whole was for pope this whole was for pope present in every part and the parts found their true being in the whole as a result the enlightenment hope was in a social order introduced by the scientific state which would liberate man and unite him in that true world brotherhood which represented his only hope. This faith received a major setback in the American rebellion, a Christian counter-revolution, but it is again prevalent and has its great institutional formulation in the United Nations. The religious reduction of all reality to one is pantheism, or, in more sophisticated forms, existentialism and neo-orthodoxy. The political reduction of all humanity to one, with the obliteration of all differences, is the United Nations hope. It is a faith present in many forms. 
Thus, a state law barring a conservative Bible club from state colleges as divisive because limited to fundamentalistic Protestants and excluding Jews, Roman Catholics, atheists and others presupposes unity as the one virtue. Divisiveness is, by definition, evil. It is thus apparent that both realism and nominalism are ultimately destructive of the idea of truth. Nominalism admits no reality in universals other than particularity, and realism ultimately reduces all universals, all universals to one, unity, and especially in non-religious forms, is quickly hostile to any notion that truth and unity can be in conflict. The Protestant Reformation asserted the priority of truth to unity. Modernist Protestantism increasingly denies the possibility of their conflict, implicitly accepting authoritarian, authoritarian unity. Truth is unity and unity is truth. Ecumenicity, all churches in one, is of itself therefore deemed both good and necessary. Politically, the United Nations is also seen as both good and necessary. The possibility of improvement is admitted, but not the possibility of elimination, for both hope and progress rests in the development of the principle of unity. With respect to the United States, Van Zandt deplores the fact that the divisive liberal thinker Jefferson was nominalist and hence given to an anarchistic individualism as expressed in his agrarianism. As a result, America's French Revolution has awaited the 20th century. In quotes. But now, the realism of Pierce and modern thinkers is restoring the primacy of the one. From such a perspective, a one-world order is a necessity. Ideas, thus, do have consequences. More than that, pre the presuppositions behind ideas have consequences. The difference between presuppositions and intentions is an important one. With respect to foreign aid, the US program has had a liberating and ostensibly Christian intention while actually resting on a thoroughgoing Marxian dialectical materialism, as Gross Close has ably pointed out. This presupposition, rather than its announced intention, has governed the outcome of foreign aid. A religious and philosophical consistency is thus important. Eclectic systems, which lack systematic consistency and organisation, are doomed. In facing the menaces of Marxism and anti-Christianity, we cannot succeed if our own premises or presuppositions carry concealed Marxist and anti-Christian axioms. The problem of the one and the many may be avoided in the classroom, pulpit and press, but it cannot be avoided in life. The question remains... Which has primacy and priority? Is the state more important than the individual? Or does the individual have a reality which the state does not possess? What is the locus of Christianity, the believer, or the church? Does marriage have a reality which makes its condition mandatory, irrespective of the conditions of the husband and wife? Or do the persons in the marriage take priority in their wishes over the idea of marriage? Is education to be geared to the development of the individual or to the welfare of society? Raising these questions immediately makes apparent the fact that our society does have opinions on the one and the many, and that both nominalist and realist have, in the last century, extensively influenced our education, religion and legislation. Section 3. The Trinitarian Answer Orthodox Christianity has asserted another answer to the problem, and to make clear that answer, certain elementary distinctions are necessary. Theology and philosophy distinguish between the ontological trinity and the economical trinity in speaking of God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are each a personality, and together they constitute the triune and exhaustively personal, totally self-conscious God. God is totally self-conscious, meaning that he has no hidden, unknown aspects of his being, no unexploited potentiality. He is actuality, self-conscious and personal. Each person of the Trinity is equally God, 
as Van Til has stated it. Each being is as much God as are the other two. The Son and the Spirit do not derive their being from the Father. The diversity and unity in the Godhead are therefore equally ultimate. They are exhaustively correlative to one another and not correlative to anything else. The Trinity, so described, is called the ontological Trinity. That is, the Trinity in its relationship to itself in terms of its own being. When the relationship of the triune God to his creation is discussed, the economical Trinity is referred to. That is, the Trinity in its relationship to its activity with respect to the universe, creating, sustaining or redeeming it. Our concern now is with the ontological Trinity, God in his being. The being of God is infinite, eternal, unchangeable and holy. Biblical thought differentiates between created being and uncreated being, whereas <clears throat> all non-Christian systems speak of being in general, one undifferentiated being shared in various degrees by God and man alike. In these non-Christian metaphysics, the idea of the great chain of being, of the ultimate oneness of God and man, is implicit or explicit. Evil is non-being and man either moves downward into non-being, or upward on the ladder, or chain into absorption by, or full participation in, being. Salvation is thus metaphysical, a development of being, whereas for biblical faith it is ethical, involving a new life and a new relationship to God, a change from status as a covenant breaker to status as a covenant keeper. Because man is a created being, he is totally under the government of God, and his thinking is true only as subject to God, whom he meets in every aspect of the universe, because it is totally the creation of God. Quote, the main point is that if man could look anywhere and not be confronted with the revelation of God, then he could not sin in the biblical sense of the term. Sin is the breaking of the law of God. God confronts man everywhere. He cannot, in the nature of the case, confront man anywhere if he does not confront him everywhere. God is one. The law is one. If man could press one button of the radio of his experience and not hear the voice of God, then he would always press that button and not the others. But man cannot even press the button of his own self-consciousness without hearing the requirement of God. End quote. Thus, all factuality in the universe is created and understandable only in terms of the ontological trinity. Because he created it, its meaning is also created meaning, derived from him who made it. This points us to the ontological trinity as the answer to the problem of the one and the many. Immediately, we have a distinction which does not exist in non-Christian thought. We have a temporal one and many in the created universe and we have an eternal one and many in the ontological trinity, an absolute and self-complete unity. In Van Til, we have a definitive formulation of the implications. Quote, Using the language of the one and many question, we contend that in God, the one and many are equally ultimate. Unity in God is no more fundamental than diversity, and diversity in God is no more fundamental than unity. The persons of the Trinity are mutually exclusive of one another. The Son and the Spirit are ontologically on a par with the Father. It is a well-known fact that all heresies in history of the Church have in some form or other taught sub subordinationism. Similarly, we believe all heresies in apologetic methodology spring from some, for, some form of subordinationism. End quote. Since both the one and the many are equally ultimate in God, it immediately becomes apparent that these two seemingly contradictory aspects of being do not cancel one another, but are equally basic to the ontological trinity, one God, three persons. Again, since temporal unity and plurality are the products and creation of this triune God, neither the unity nor the plurality can demand the sacrifice of the other to itself. Thus, man and government are equally aspects of created reality. The locus of Christianity is both the believer and the church. They are not independent of 
or prior to one another. The wishes of husband and wife do not take priority over marriage, nor does the institution of marriage have primacy over the partners to it. Marriage, is, marriage indeed is a type of an eternal reality, from Ephesians 5.22-25, but man is himself created in the image of God, from Genesis 1.26-27. Education must be geared both to the individual and to society, but, above all, to God. Section 4. The Unitarian Failure <clears throat> It becomes apparent at once why Unitarianism has floundered between the one and the many, between anarchism and statism. Lacking, as it does, any doctrine of the equal ultimacy of the one and the many in the ontological trinity, it has accepted since its orientation is the temporal, either the ultimacy of man or the state. Mohammedanism, because of its Unitarianism, has been primarily a monolithic statist order, Islam. Its denial of free will and espousal of rigid determinism is related to this theological premise. Since plurality has no ultimate reality in Mohammedanism, the freedom of the many is an academic question, the one will of Allah governs all reality. The tendency of Mohammedan thought, when not arrested by statist action, to run into mysticism is an obvious and natural one. Since the one alone has ultimate reality, the proper goal of the many is absorption into that one. Since the one alone has ultimacy, the one alone has freedom. There is no reformed or Augustinian distinction between proximate and ultimate causes. Indeed, if two ingredients are lacking in a system of thought, i.e. the ontological trinity and the distinction between created and uncreated being, this distinction is bluffed, in that both proximate and ultimate causes, if the difference is made, are alike derived from a common well of being and are basically one. For Calvin, Responsible proximate causes rested precisely on the total, all-comprehensive, ultimate cause. That is, the Christian doctrine of free will rests on the eternal counsel of God, on predestination. As the Westminster Confession stated it, quote, Although in, rea in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, yet by the same providence, he ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet, so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty of or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. End quote. In this perspective, liberty and law are not hostile factors, but necessary aspects of one another, so that the one cannot exist without the other. The eternal one and many is both unity and plurality, both totally free, being self-determined, and being fully self-conscious, having also a total counsel predestinating all things by his eternal decree. Law and liberty coincide in the ontological trinity, in the temporal one and many. The fulfilment of creation is in terms of the glorious liberty of the sons of God, their growth within the structure of God's law, from Romans 8. By and large, the Unitarian influence in US history has been statist, very early, Unitarian thinkers led the country into a messianic view of the state as man's source of salvation and of true order, and also into statist education. Even in so cautious a man as Emerson, some of the facets appear. In 1844, in Essays and Second Series, Emerson, in Nominalist and Realist, affirmed his support for realism and saw nature as natural process and saw nature and, nat and natural process as the incarnation and distribution of the Godhead. This meant that no part or particular in nature could permanently express or incarnate the truth, which rested in process. Quote, 
Each man too is a tyrant in tendency because he would impose his idea on others and their trick is their natural defence. Jesus would absorb the race but Tom Paine or the coarsest blasphemer helps humanity by resisting this exuberance of power. End quote. In The American Scholar, an address of 1837, Emerson asserted an ostensibly extreme individualism, which was actually a dissolution of the individual to give ground for the totalitarian concept of society. The common will he saw embodied in representative men. In 1838, in an address delivered in Divinity College, Cambridge, Emerson declared, quote, the soul knows no persons. It invites every man to expand to the full circle of the universe, end quote. In literary ethics, he declared, quote, the man of genius should occupy the whole space between God or pure mind and the multitude of uneducated men. He must draw from the infinite reason on one side and he must penetrate into the heart and sense of the crowd on the other. From one, he must draw his strength. To the other, he must owe his aim. The one yokes him to the real, the other to the apparent. End quote. The man of genius is thus, for his age, the incarnation of reality. But the people whom he serves are merely appearances, the apparent. This is a parallel development to the Hellagian and Marxist doctrine of the elite and the dictatorship of the proletariat. In writing on history in Essays, First Series, 1841, Emerson stated that, quote, There is one mind in common to all individual men. Every man is an inlet to the same and to all of the same, end quote. But since most men have only a meagre participation in this great one, the common being, the great representative men become their voice and representative in that era. These men are the true state. Quote, to educate the wise man, the state exists, and with the appearance of the wise man, the state expires. The appearance of character makes the state unnecessary. The wise man is the state. End quote. While Emerson was ready to affirm with Jefferson that the least government was the best government, he laid the foundation for statism. The utilitarian belief in nature as the perfect mechanism working to effect the greatest good of the greatest number, he transferred to the state. Quote, As we say in our modern politics, catching at last the language of morals, that the object of the state is the greatest good of the greatest number, so the reason we must give for the existence of the world is that it is for the benefit of all being. End quote. It is no surprise then to learn that Emerson was in the second echelon of the Secret Six, a group dedicated to forcing statist and military action with respect to slavery and supporting John Brown. Emerson, in his public addresses, seemed to regard Brown as the needed representative man of the hour. Just as in nominalism, universals became abstract universals. Mere verbal generalizations without any meaning in themselves so in realism, individuals tend to become mere abstract particulars, thin in being and meaningless apart from the great one. In Emerson, representative men and the state were the incarnation of that oneness for their particular era, occupying the whole space as true mediators of reality. This is essential doctrine of ancient Babylonian statism and a continuing foundation of new Towers of Babel. Section 5. Faith and Science In the ontological trinity, we have a concrete universal and concrete particulars. Moreover, quote, In God's being, there are no particulars not related to the individual, and there is nothing universal that is not fully expressed in the particulars. End quote. This means that the trinity is totally self-contained and totally explicable in terms of itself. In turn, this means that the temporal one and many, having been created by God, is entirely and only explicable in terms of the ontological trinity, 
and that the non-believer's knowledge of the universe in terms of borrowed premises for the logic of any other premise is, as Van Til has repeatedly shown, the denial of our experience and rea of reality. Nominalism ends by dissolving the world into an endless sea of unrelated and meaningless facts or particulars, whereas realism progressively denies the valid validity of particulars and of, of the many and absorbs them into an undifferentiated and shoreless ocean of being. At either end, definition, meaning and truth disappear. At one end, total relativism and anarchy, and at the other, total authoritarianism. It is thus understandable why Van Til states that, quote, The Christian should frankly begin his scientific work on the presupposition of the cotemineity of the universal and the particular in the Godhead. End quote. This is the concealed premise whereby the unbelieving scientist operates. He assumes the validity of both particulars and universals, of both the one and the many, and their relationship, for otherwise he could formulate nothing. To assume the ultimacy of chance is to deny the possibility of science and of meaning. As Pi has observed, quote, unless we choose to accept the doctrine of predestination, it's chance, it is chance that makes history, end quote. Van Til has summarized the matter clearly, quote, sinners use the principle of chance back of all things, and the idea of exhaustive rationalization as the legitimate aim of science. If the universe were actually what these men assume it to be, according to their principle, there would be no science. Science is possible and actual only because the non-believer's principle is not true, and the believer's principle is true. Only because God has created the universe and does control it by his providence is there a such thing as science at all. End quote. <clears throat> Section 6. Political Perspectives If God has truly and casually created all things, and is himself sovereign, self-contained and triune, then no fact is a fact apart from him, nor can any fact have a valid interpretation in and of itself. God created factuality means God interpreted factuality. Apart from God, there is only the concept of brute factuality, facts in and of themselves, and without any relationship or meaning in terms of one another, a sea of meaningless and unrelated particulars, or else the absorption of all, all facts into the ocean of being and their loss of both identity and particular meaning. The first means a world of anarchistic atoms or particulars, and the second means a totalitarian and obliterating unity. Much, if not most, anarchism escapes from its total isolationism and meaninglessness by discovering the whole as present in every part. In Simone Weil, anarchism thus ended the tyranny of the one. Ended in the tyranny of the one. A friendly scholar thus describes her utopia. Quote, Simone Weil's utopia is essentially a system of production in which every worker would determine his own behaviour by reason alone, without reference to any rules, with respect both to his own role in the productive process and the coordination of his role with the roles of all the other members of the community. In such a society, everyone would be in a position to control the entire life of the community, so community life would always be in conformity with the general will. Would this not put the whole society at the mercy of a single arbitrary act? The situation is excluded conceptually because, quote, there is only one single identical reason for all men. They become foreign and impenetrable to one another only when they depart from it. Thus a society in which the necessary and sufficient condition of all material life is that everyone exercises his reason would be completely transparent to every mind. End both quotes. The similarity to Marxism is readily apparent, as is the re reason why anarchism historically has worked so closely with socialism and communism. In orthodox Trinitarian Christianity, the problem of the one and the many is resolved. Unity and plurality are equally ultimate in the Godhead, and temporal unity and plurality are on a basis of equal validity, 
there is thus no basic conflict between individual and community. The individual lives in community, and the community flourishes as the individual finds himself and grows in terms of consistently Christian faith. Instead of a basic philosophical hostility between individual and government, believer and church, person and family, there is a necessary coexistence. Neither the one nor the many is reducible to the other. They cannot seek the obliteration of the other, for that involves self-obliteration. The Augustinian and Calvinistic faith, by its hostility to subordinationism, holds, if developed, the possibilities for true social order, and, to the extent that Augustinianism and Calvinism have been followed, Western culture has developed both freedom and order. When Christological subordination has set in, that is, the subordinate status of the second person of the Trinity affirmed, statism has arisen. As in Byzantium Russia, with its docetic Christology, Anglicanism and Modernism, to cite but a few instances. The equal ultimacy of the one and the many is disturbed, and the order of revelation demoted. The Roman emperors were intensely aware of this fact, and, to promote statism, supported Arianism and other subordinationist views as essential to the maintenance of the state as the one true order in which man's life was totally comprehended. The hostility to Athanasius rested on this premise. The Council of Chalcedon in 451, by affirming the full Trinitarian faith, was thus the significant victory that led to what is called Western civilization. Reductionism is the outcome of a faulty Christology. Once the eternal one and many is negated in its equal ultimacy, it ceases to be the framework of reference, and an imminent one absorbs the many. This imminent one, the Roman, Byzantine and Holy Roman Empire sought to be, as does the modern state, and now the United Nations. Instead of the focal point being a transcendental one and many, with no human order, as created being could embody, the temporal order became the frame of reference. The eternal order was denied so that a human one could replace it. The divine emperors and the divine right of kings rested on this philosophical premise, and the Byzantine court developed a theology of the emperor and court. Modern statism is a descendant of this faith. Whether democracy, communism, or the United Nations, it sees the fulfilment of man in terms of the state, the, one, the true one and reality of being. Man, after Aristotle, is seen as a social animal who exists truly only in the state. There is no law beyond the state, so that, whether in Russia or the United States, Christianity must be denied its role as the basis of law and, being, and be given, at best, toleration as a peripheral or non-essential factor in man's history. Man is now defined as humanity rather than the individual, and this great one, humanity, to be truly a unity, must exist as one state. In this picture, any assertion of individuality, local or national independence, or the reality of races is viewed with hostility and a sign of mental sickness. It is an assertion, an assertion of plurality which challenges the reality and unity of the individual. It is a sick shattering of the great oneness of being. But since differences and distinctions are basic to all description and definition, meaning disappears as this universal triumphs. We have noted the bold derogation of all plurality and meaning in Milarepa. There are signs of a similar boldness in modern champions of this exclusive universal humanity as a world state. Thus, Rimbaud, Ginsberg, Henry Miller and others negate all other meanings in terms of the one reality, humanity, but humanity, seen as totally divorced from Christianity, law, morality, and civilization. The tension between the one and the many in non-Christian systems means the exclusiveness of one or the other, with the end result being the total meaninglessness of categories, whether in Miller-Repa or Miller. <coughs> Section 7. 
implications for education and freedom. Basic, then, to all cultures and civilizations is an answer to the problem of the one and the many. The fact that this century witnesses an organized philosophical, educational, religious and practical evasion of the problem makes it only more urgent and our plight more serious. Formal education today is a tool for the systematic destruction of knowledge because it bypasses the basic questions. It is Alexandrian, learned but ignorant, and given to, a masses, given to masses of detail without a focus. As at the end of the Middle Ages, the academic world is again plagued by a reign of dunces. A curious footnote to history is the fact that John Dunce Scotus, 1266 or 1274 to 1308, the father of the dunces, was followed in his realism by the American Charles Pierce, 1839-1914, who influenced James, Dewey and Royce. But irrespective of these men, the fact remains that their era saw a rise of statism because the prevailing thought of the day moved towards an exclusive principle of unity. Dunce Scotus indeed tried to give the individual place within the one, but the era as a whole tended either to a mystical absorption of the plurality by the one, or a shattering of all unity by the assertion of the autonomy of the many. In our day, when philosophy, economic theory, psychiatry and politics question the idea of the soul, and at times even the mind of man, concepts such as liberty are basically irrelevant. Where is man's freedom? In Freud, Marx, Keynes or Dewey? Quote, the upsurge of mass conditioning in this century has spelled the demise of the autonomous man who has been so enthusiastically proclaimed by liberal theorists. Autonomy may still be a reality for the small minority who, uh, who operate the conditioning process or who manage to escape it, but because the vast bulk of the community passively receives the attitudes which are implanted in them, it is necessary for us to recast our thinking about the individual in politics. If his mind is not his own, the notions which we have inherited from liberal theory must be overhauled or even discarded. Conceptions such as consent, obedience, obligation, leadership, public opinion, representative government, majority rule and even freedom must take on new meanings. The traditional definitions which spring from liberal theory may perhaps still hold true for those who plan the conditioning of others, but they are gross malaprops for those whose minds are on the receiving end. And this latter group contains the vast majority of us. End quote. Such a perspective rests on a doctrine of man which is non-Christian and without any awareness of the Trinitarian answer to the problem of the one and the many. Our anthropology, or doctrine of man, is a product of our theology, our doctrine of God. When the temporal one and many is viewed, problem is viewed in non-Trinitarian terms, either the anarchistic autonomy of man, the many, is asserted, or the totalitarian reign of the one, the state, or some other total order. The problem cannot be evaded, and to be met, the right questions must first be raised. Section 8. The Question of Authority The implications for the practical question of authority are now apparent. In nominalism, sovereignty and authority rests with the many, with individuals who are a law unto themselves. No law beyond themselves can have any binding power over them. The logic of nominalism leads it into anarchy. Realism, however, renders sovereignty and authority into the hands of the one, whether bishop or Caesar. There is no appeal beyond this powerful unity, and no right which can be logically asserted against it. As against this impasse, Orthodox Chalcedonian Trinitarianism asserts the transcendence of sovereignty, which rests in the triune God. Temporal authority is ministerial or delegated power, subject to God and his law. Authority rests both in the temporal unity and in the plurality, and its true exercise requires this diffusion. 
Since there is an equal ultimacy of unity and plurality in the eternal one and many, there is an equal delegation of authority in the temporal one and many. In civil government, to cite one instance of a temporal one and many, this means that there is a division of powers, a general diffusion of authority, and a balance of controls and powers throughout the entire structure of civil government, from citizenry on through all the diversified structure of their government. Both liberties and powers alike, limited under God, and hence under law. Liberty is limited and power is limited because the temporal order is under God. The effect historically of this concept on reformed church structures, on institutional life and on civil government and constitutional theory is of major importance. Whatever other influences may have been at work, it is apparent that, in the shaping of the United States, a truly Christian concept of the one and the many was a decisive, if often unrecognised, presupposition. Restoration of this presupposition and further development of its implications is basic to man's future in every facet. We are still living on the unearned increment of past ages, reaping from fields we did not sow and harvesting from ancient trees we never planted. This, as of old, is the road to Babylon, to Babylon and to captivity. Faced with such a threat, an ancient precedent should give us warning. Zedekiah tried every practical answer, but avoided the essential one. His premise was basically Babylonian, and as a result, his small Babylon in Judea fell before Nebuchadnezzar's greater one. Then, as now, we are no stronger than our foundations. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.